First Corinthians chapter one, verse one. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let's pray together. Father, a new day and a new letter. Wow, these words are so compelling and I I am so thankful for them. Thankful for your word, Father. You have magnified your word alongside all your name. And we are so blessed now this morning to be in your word and to hear from you, Father. I pray today this would be more than words on a page, more than background to a letter. Lord, you already have been at work here this morning. In the previous service during worship, Even among us as we fellowshiped and talked with one another and prayed together, you have been at work here. I marvel at the fact, Lord, that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there. And we do recognize your presence here among us, Lord Jesus, by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit who is here. We acknowledge that, we rest under that, and we seek what your Spirit has promised to do, and that is remind us of all the things, Jesus, that you taught, all the things that were important to you, and to glorify you, Lord. So be honored, be glorified, even as you remind us now and teach us new things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming fast up on the first day of summer, June 21st, my son Corey's birthday. He will be 26, is that right? Old man. 26 years old. I was 25 when he was born. The first day of summer. So we're launching into that time of year. Now I know in Washington, typically the first day of summer is July 5th. But we seem to be doing all right. Seem to be headed that direction. We have just come out of the winter and spring, uh, spending time in Rome. Studying with with the, the Roman church, the letter of Paul, and seeking to understand. And we've enjoyed this. As we've journeyed through the scriptures, our last stop was Rome. Next stop, Corinth. And in fact, I invite you to spend the summer with me in Corinth and perhaps on into the fall as we get to a second letter there to the people, the church at Corinth. Corinth has been called the most American city in the New Testament. It was a resort city and it was known to be the capital of pleasure in all the Roman Empire. Ancient Corinthos rose to prominence long before the first century in 730 B.C., It was established as a city. It predated uh, great philosophical thinkers among the Greeks like like Plato and, and Socrates by three centuries. It gained greater distinction among the Greeks, but ultimately was destroyed by Rome in 146 BC. Flattened, blown away. And for a hundred years it sat empty. Not many people visited Corinth. But then in 46 BC... Julius Caesar came along and reestablished it as a Roman colony and it began to flourish once again. It was very Greek in nature, though again a colony of Rome. And the thing to remember is that while Rome rebuilt it, the old demons were still there. They never went anywhere. The problems of Corinth 
The lust of Corinth, the sin of Corinth, was the same after as it was before. Corinthos means satiated. The name of the city, satiated. And truly, the city of Corinth was synonymous with self-gratification and decadence. You want to get sated on the things of life, of carnality, of pleasure. Man, go to Corinth. It's a city that was steeped in Greek mythology. It was said that a a king by the name of Sisyphus, Sisyphus, King Sisyphus, began a race of kings there in Corinth many centuries ago. But the old story went that King Sisyphus defied the gods, and so as an eternal punishment, they forced him to roll a stone up a hill, up to the very top. When he got there, the stone would roll back down to the bottom, and Sisyphus would have to go right back and do the whole thing over again throughout eternity, up the hill, and down the hill, and up the hill. And what's interesting is all the way into the 20th century... The French existential philosopher Albert Camus reached back to that story to express his philosophy that life is absurd. Life is meaningless, it is without purpose, it is like Sisyphus rolling that hill, that that stone up the hill, and back down again. Satiated, but never satisfied. That's Corinth. That's a picture of the very city to which Paul writes this letter. Now, geographically speaking, Corinthos lies due west of Athens, about 50 miles west of Athens. Athens sits down at the bottom, the southern end of the mainland of Greece, and then Corinth today sits across across a bridge, really. There's a reservoir there, or a canal. I'll explain that in a minute. But then you've got the southern... uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula is what it's called, or the Peloponnesus. That is that southern mountainous region, and Corinth sits at the top of that. Athens sits at the bottom of the mainland, again, a 50-mile journey from one to the other. The Gulf of Corinth came into one side, separating the Peloponnesian Peninsula from the mainland, and then there was a four-mile bridge, an isthmus, that separated that from the Saronic Gulf that was then on the eastern shore. So that tiny little strip of land that used to be there it is no longer there. It was actually dug out in 1893. So now if you visit Corinth today, you come out of Athens, you make that journey west, you come to a point where you stop at the Corinth Canal, a deep channel four miles long that's cut between, again, southern Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. On the eastern shore of what used to be a neck of land before it was carved into a canal... On the western shore was Cancrea. You know the name. We just read it in Romans 16 about a woman named Phoebe who was from the church in Cancrea. Cancrea was the western port city. Corinth was the eastern port city. Corinth on the Gulf of Corinth. Cancrea on the Gulf, the Saronic Gulf, as it's called. Now, what's interesting about Corinth is that it was long known as the international base for sailors and travelers coming from Rome and the West and going to the East, or coming from the East and going to the West. Most of the traffic went right through Corinth. But that doesn't really make sense geographically. Because if you were to look at a map, especially of old Corinth, before the canal was there, you would have to travel into the Gulf of Corinth, into that inlet, literally 81 miles from the Ionian Sea, just to get to Corinth. And then you'd have to travel back out 81 miles and down around the southern peninsula to head on out to the east if you were traveling that direction. If you were coming from the other way, you had to sail all the way into the Saronic Gulf, which was about 50 miles in from the Aegean Sea. Corinth sat right in the middle on that land bridge and it just wouldn't have made sense for sailors or travelers to travel that far in and then back out and around to get to their destination. But there was another problem that kind of came up with Corinth. With sailing around the Peloponnesus to the other side, either way, sailors didn't like to make that trip. Why? Because the Peloponnesian Peninsula belonged to one Poseidon. Or so they believed. 
Poseidon, that Greek god, and they felt that if they sailed around, he would mess with their boats truly. Many shipwrecks happened in the rocky shoals and the, and the uh, dangerous seas down around the south. They wanted to avoid that. Sailors were highly superstitious of the song of the sirens that they said could be heard around the southern end of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So they didn't want to sail that way. If only they could figure out a way to get from the Gulf of Corinth to Cancrea and the Saronic Gulf. Four miles, that's all they needed to do. And they figured out a way that put Corinth on the map. Vessels would come into the Gulf of Corinth, be hoisted out of the water, and dragged along rollers by slaves to the other side and then put back into the water to sail on. While the vessels were making that four-mile journey, it would take three or four days to do it, so all of the people on board the ships headed into Corinth, where they could enjoy the fruits of Corinth and all of its satiating pleasures. So Corinth became truly an international city, but understand that this city was also home to the worship center of Aphrodite, goddess of lust. Let's call her what she is. She is not the goddess of love. She is the goddess of lust. All you need to see is, is a, a, a picture or a, a clay form of Aphrodite, the many-breasted goddess of lust. Inviting people to come to her, her temple stood at the summit of the Acrocorinthus, which was this 1,900-foot-high above-sea-level mountain that towers over Corinth, the Acrocorinthus. And that mountain housed her temple. 10,000 temple prostitutes serviced the area. Plato, in fact, knew about this, referred to all prostitutes as Corinthian girls. Ladies, you don't want that for a t-shirt, Corinthian girl. (laughs) Not a good idea. Later, the Romans even coined a phrase, a single word, Corinthiazomai. If you were Corinthiazomai, it meant that you lived like a Corinthian. With wild sexual abandon. This was a very lusty city. In fact, today, and a few of us were just there, you can go into a museum that is there in Corinth that shows a lot of the ancient uh, busts and carvings and things that have been dug up and excavated in the archaeology there. And in one particular room, there are dozens of sculptures all along the walls. I don't even want to describe them to you. Let's just say these little sculptures, these little votives are human unmentionables. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? All along this wall, they discovered these because what people would do is when they got a sexually transmitted disease, they would purchase these little votives and often offer them up to the gods for healing. They found thousands of these scattered. I mean, more common than shards of pottery as they dug up. Corinth. This was a place where an STD was common. And if Athens was home to the pantheon of pagan religion, then Corinth was the pagan party town. That's where the people went if they wanted to play. And I thought about that and thought, wow, it's not exactly the kind of place where you would think to plant the gospel. Where you would think that the gospel would take root. Then again, maybe you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, skip over there and look at this. I'm going to give you a few little uh, excerpts of places and and ideas throughout 1 and 2 Corinthians this morning to give an introduction of where we're going, and then we'll make a brief application at the end. But watch this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he describes Corinth. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators... Fornicators, that's sex prior to or outside of marriage. Nor idolaters, and sex in Corinth was idolatrous. Nor adulterers, that is those who are married but are sleeping with somebody else. Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's encouraging, Paul. You're saying this in Corinth? To Corinth? Do you know what these people are doing? And then he says one of my favorite verses in Scripture, such were some of you. He's talking to the church. Amazing. 
fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. That's what that church was made up of. Once. But not anymore. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Oh, how the most unlikely of people fall head over heels in love with Jesus and are changed. And so Corinth is the perfect place to take the Gospel. And again, a reminder of what we're called to do right now in this world. If you opened up the news and saw this morning what took place in Florida, you know what I'm talking about. Sin on sin. A horrible, brutal situation taking place there in in a very sinful location. And I read it and I thought, how depraved are we going to get? And I've told you before, there are times where personally, in my Christian life, I just say, Lord, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live in this culture I want to move off to an island somewhere where there's only believers and we just worship the Lord 24-7. Of course, you know if we did that, we would mess the island up. (laughs) But don't you get weary of the depravity? I do. I think I especially get weary of my own. But this world in which we live, this is the place that we have been placed. This is our Corinth. Our location. And God did not sidestep Corinth. He went straight to the heart of Corinth. And the gospel was shared. More about that in just a moment. Paul first arrived in Corinthus. Probably about the fall of 50 AD. When he arrived there, I don't think he was in the best of moods. He hadn't really had the best week or month or season of his life. He was on his missionary journey. And he had been driven out of Macedonia... So he made his way down to Athens, and there in Athens, that that seat of learning and knowledge and wisdom in the Greek world, oh, he preached an amazing sermon, a powerful sermon, a profound and philosophically sound sermon, and he was laughed out of town. Didn't work. Well, then Paul begins to make that 50-mile trek by himself walking from Athens and arriving in Corinth, no doubt very lonely, no doubt confused, no doubt highly prayerful. Lord, what's going wrong? When I go somewhere and I do make headway, I get driven out. And then I come somewhere like Athens where the logic and the reason and the wisdom of, of the Bible, man, this should be embraced and accepted, and they laughed at me. And I tried to speak their language. I tried to be culturally relevant, Lord, and it just didn't take. I wonder about that walk of Paul. I think that 50-mile journey was the most important journey of his entire life. As a matter of fact, I think that 50-mile journey was what God required before Paul could even start writing letters. He would write to the Corinthian church after that. He would write to Rome after that. He would write to the church in Galatia after that. All of Paul's letters came after the 50-mile journey of Paul's realization. What was that realization? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul tells us exactly how he entered Corinth. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That's what he did in Athens. I told you when we studied Acts chapter 17, that amazing philosophical sermon of Paul, that sermon that is still studied in seminaries today as as the ultimate culturally relevant sermon. And yet in that sermon, Paul doesn't name Jesus a single time. Even as he's calling out philosophies to explain. And and right when he starts to get to the idea of resurrection, he's going to mention Jesus, and they laugh him off of Mars Hill. He says, I didn't come that way to you. He said in verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Now we'll get to what what his preaching was like when he came to Corinth. But Paul says, I arrived and everything that I thought would work had failed. And now I'm here and I'm weak and I'm trembling. And I decide there's only one thing I've got left. Jesus. There's only one thing I can share. Jesus. And you know, 
I'm not sure that Corinth was even on Paul's original itinerary. But it was on God's. He landed exactly where God wanted him to go. The apostle came into town and immediately met two very valuable friends who would be friends the rest of his life, Priscilla and Aquila. Tent makers, Christians who were Jews in Rome, kicked out of Rome. You remember Priscilla and Aquila. Well, they're there and they're tent makers. Paul's a tent maker. They, they meet up. They start to work together. They share Jesus together. And there's fellowship. The first thing God does when Paul comes out of his hardship is bring him into fellowship. That's, that's instructive, gang. That's instructive. We, we need each other. We really do. And if you're struggling, if you're having a hard time, and, and, and you're, you're wondering what God is doing in your life, let me just encourage you to spend a little time in fellowship with other Christians. Pray with them. Talk to them. Uh, a gentleman asked this morning, again, I heard the question I've heard a million times, how can I hear God? Well, one of the ways you can start is be with His people. Hang out with those who hear God. Talk to them, pray with them, listen with them, study the Word with them. Paul receives that, and it seems like things get a little better for Paul. In fact, he will stay in Corinth 18 months. There he begins to teach the Gospel with Priscilla and Aquila. As Timothy comes down and brings an offering and support for Paul, he stops tent making and he just completely devotes himself to the teaching of the Word. And there in Corinth, Paul plants one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, churches in the entire New Testament. Oh, I know when we talk about Corinth, if you know anything about this letter and the next... You think, ah, that church is a mess. That church was powerful, gang. Profoundly powerful. The work of the Spirit there is more described than any other church that we have in the New Testament Scriptures. And Paul likely wrote this first letter that we have anyway, wrote from Ephesus in 54 or 55 AD. So a little later on, he will write back to this group of people that he spent that time with. He wrote 1 Corinthians before, again, before he wrote to the saints at Rome from Corinth. That would happen a little bit later. And F.F. Bruce has this to say. He says, it's plain from his two surviving letters to the Corinthians that the church he planted there caused him many a headache. It was turbulent and unruly. But it was undoubtedly alive and remains so to this day. Did you know the church is still in Corinth today? 2,000 years later, there has always been a Christian presence in Corinth. Other places where Paul planted churches have no Christianity at all now. Corinth still does. Paul planted a beautiful, powerful, messed up church in Corinth. A church that I like to call a beautiful mess. Now, 1 Corinthians wasn't his first letter to this untidy fellowship. In fact, if you will skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, turn there, let me show you something. Paul writing now later to these dear brothers and sisters says, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Okay, so he's already written one letter. So 1 Corinthians is actually probably 2 Corinthians or 3rd. I don't know how many letters he wrote. I just know this is the first oldest one that we have to Corinth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I read that and I go, yeah, amen, build me an island. (laughs) And then Paul says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. No island will hold you. You're going to have to go to Mars, dude, if you're going to try and find a place where you're not going to see this kind of immorality. And Paul clarifies, I didn't mean them. What are you talking about, Paul? Don't associate with immoral people. Actually, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's fascinating to me. Because Paul says we are to have a different attitude toward one another in the body of Christ than what we have toward the world outside. 
And it is not what you would think. We have it backwards. Typically, Christians show all kinds of grace in the body of Christ, but outside we have lots of judgment. Paul says that's upside down. The judgment's here. Peter says it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Paul said, for those outside, grace. For those inside, truth. Got it? Non-believers get grace. Believers, we need truth. And so we do judge, we do discern. And Paul says, if you're not going to associate with someone, don't associate with someone who says, oh, I'm a Christian, but they're living an immoral lifestyle. It's a lie. You don't claim Christ and continue to live in the world. I'm getting ahead of myself here. In this letter, look what else he says. Verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's strong language, Paul. But it's a balance that we need to understand. It's the balance of love and the gospel. The balance of grace and truth. This is it. Love the outsider enough that you will offer them grace. Love the insider enough that you will judge them with truth. We need to learn to do that. Because too many of our churches are too tolerant of immorality in the church and too judgmental of those outside the church. And again, it's backwards. It's upside down. In either case, whether it's with someone who is not a believer or someone who is, we are to do both out of love. So don't miss that. If I'm judging a brother or sister or if I myself am being judged, it better be for love's sake. It better be that you look at me and say, I love Rick too much to let him continue doing the stupid thing that he's doing. He doesn't even realize, perhaps, how simple he's being in this area. And I'm not going to shut my eyes to it because he's my brother. I love him. I care about him. And I know that's how you all feel about me. I get your emails. (laughs) And my heart to you is the same. Do we love each other enough to be honest and say, look, what you're doing is just wrong. If we're in Christ together, we have salvation, we have grace, we have forgiveness and the restoration of Jesus. We don't have anything to be afraid of, so let's deal with truth and love each other enough, yes, even to judge. We have two letters of Paul to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There were at least three, possibly four, maybe even more. But what you need to understand is the Holy Spirit chose to preserve these two. So what we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians are the two letters that God inspired and wanted us to have. And they're vitally important to the church. Anytime I'm studying and I come into a new book, I'm always fascinated to see how God is going to turn a corner. Every time we've gone from one book into the next, I, 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 have this, I, I go through this little isthmus of my own where I cross over and think, uh, what's it going to be like? How's it going to be different? What if it's just more of the same? And it never is. It's always unique. We studied Paul's letter to Rome. It is primarily doctrinal. As you saw, Paul lays out all the way from the wrath of God through salvation and sanctification. He talks about Israel. He lays out some of the most fundamental and profound doctrines of the church in the letter to Rome. And it's stunning. You want to study church doctrine? Go to Romans. Study that. 1 Corinthians is completely different. While there is doctrine here, this letter is primarily exhortational, not doctrinal. Meaning what? Meaning that these documents are pointedly concerned with life in the local church. 1 Corinthians is written as an answer to questions that were sent to Paul by the church at Corinth. They were confused about specifically about marriage and some other things. And so Chloe and her people come to Paul and they share this. And so Paul writes out this letter, 1 Corinthians, responding to, what do we do with this, Paul? How do we handle that, Paul? How are we supposed to face this issue or or that issue? Now, go back to the first chapter. A couple of things to point out. Watch this. In verse 2. And we're going to start over on Wednesday night with verse 1 and we're going to track it through. But I want to pull out just a few things in these few verses by way of introduction. He says in verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Note that contrast. The church of God at Corinth. At 
Corinth, not of Corinth. Of God, not at God. The church of God belonging to God, not the church that belongs to Corinth. And that was one of their problems, is they were the church of Corinth. They were church in Corinth. They were trying to be culturally relevant with Corinth. But they are the church of God. That's what He calls them. Jesus said in John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. That, I, that is so comforting to me. When I have those times where I'm frustrated with the depravity of, of life in America, and I look around and I go, man, I just, I hate this. And I hear Jesus say, yeah, but I never, I never pray for you to be taken out of the world. Just to be protected from the evil one. And he says, John 17, 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. That's cool. I'm otherworldly. I'm alien. Anyway. He says, you are the church of God. Now you know the word church. If you've been in church, you've probably heard it. Ecclesia. The ecclesia, the called out, the assembly. And it referred to originally any public assembly. They could have an ecclesia in Corinth and it would just be the the public called together in the main square there of Corinth for a larger assembly, the ecclesia. What's interesting is after the church was birthed, by the way, today, today is the birthday of the church. Today is Shavuot, Pentecost. And so on this day, over 2,000 years ago now, the church was birthed. You know what happened to the word ecclesia? Suddenly it was exclusively used to talk about the church. That word that was generic and common for any public assembly became known as the word that described those Christians, the assembly, the called out ones. And Paul says, you are, you are the ecclesia, the assembly of God. And the church came to own that word. And they're at Corinth, they're called out to God, to be the church of God, not the church of Aphrodite. They were not called to Poseidon. They were not called to themselves. They were called out to be the church of God. And Paul writes further, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now I'll tell you what, I have a sense as to what is in the rest of this letter. And the things Paul has to correct them on does not sound like a sanctified group of people to me. And yet, before he gets to anything else, Paul says, you are the sanctified ones. You are called saints. The King James Version, I believe, says called to be saints. And the to be is italicized. You don't want the to be in there. Guess what? I'm not called to be a saint. I am called a saint. Period. I'm a saint right now. Saint Rick. I like the title. I'll take it. Saint Les, Saint Cheryl. You are called saints, not called to be saints. This is not out there in the future. This is right now. And this church, this messed up, beautiful group of people are called saints right now. The word there, you are called sanctified, he says. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. Sanctified is agiazo. It means made holy. Saints is agias, holy ones. Hagiazo, hagias, holy ones made holy. That's what we are. The moment, get this, the moment you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, His grace covers you, and you are among the made holy, holy ones. That's who we are. Not perfect, but made holy, holy ones. In the sight of God, He looks right through Jesus, and He sees you, and He sees me. I love that. The made holy, holy ones. Not by the hard work of man, but by the holy work of God. He says, with all who are in every place, or with all who in every place, call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I know that you're a saint the moment you call on His name. You are the made holy, holy one, because you called on the name of Jesus. And I love this. Paul is so inclusive. He says this involves everyone. Everyone who calls on Jesus. It spans geography. It spans time and seasons. It comes right down to this morning. This letter's for us. 
while written to the saints, made holy by God in Corinth, it's also to all of those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to note this. Ten times in the first ten verses of 1 Corinthians, Paul names Jesus. He doesn't skip his name once. How many times in the sermon did he, that he gave in Athens did he name Jesus? Not once. Not a single time. Toward the end of that sermon in Acts 17, he comes down and he starts to talk about one who was resurrected, but even then does not name Jesus Christ. They laugh him off Mars Hill. He makes that 50 mile trek and now he arrives at Corinth and he writes to them, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Ten times. You cannot miss his name here. Think maybe he learned something in Athens. You think maybe Paul recognized what it was really all about? It's not about trying to apply it to the culture. It's about bringing Jesus to a lost world. I determined, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Memorize that and live it out, brothers and sisters. You determined to know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, you will be an effective tool of God in a very lost and depraved world. To everyone, he says, in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's us as well. Now, again, comparing this to the letter that he wrote to Rome. Both letters contain doctrine and exhortation, but Rome is doctrine-heavy, exhortation-light. 1 Corinthians is exhortation-heavy, doctrine-light. And I don't mean doctrine-light as in uh, wispy or or non-substantial. But Paul writes to the church at Corinth more of an instruction manual than a doctrinal thesis. This is not what it means to be, how to be saved and how God does and works the plan of salvation. This is very different. Not a holy dissertation, but a hands-on instruction manual. Well, let me show you. Every chapter in this, in this letter is that way. Here's a rough overview. Chapter 1. Paul immediately begins with divisions in the local church. I hear there are divisions among you, he says. It cannot be. How can it be this way? How are you who are one body divided? And he goes right at it. I'm glad he does it at the very beginning because that's God's greatest concern with the church. Well, it's, it's not sin. No, it's division. Because there is no sin greater in the eyes of God than a brother or a sister who would seek to divide brothers and sisters. I've told you this many times. I will continue to say it. It's the one intolerable here. Someone could walk in and have a serious drinking problem and they will be received and hear the word of the Lord. Someone could come in high on drugs and we'll give them time to come down and then we will teach them about Jesus. Someone could come in in an inappropriate sexual relationship. Someone could come in with some kind of swindle or or scheming or stealing going on at work. God knows. He knows. And they will be welcomed and received to hear the word of the Lord here in this place. But if someone comes in seeking to divide a brother against a brother, no tolerance here for that. So Paul begins with division. How do you deal with it? There should be no division. Chapter 2, he starts to talk about the wisdom of the cross versus the wisdom of the Athenians and the Greek world and what the Jews look for. No, the wisdom is the cross. And then from there, in chapter 2, he talks about what it means practically to be a spiritual man or woman. It is some of the best teaching in the entire New Testament on how to be the spiritual person. And Paul gets to it right up front in the second chapter. The third chapter, how to build a church. If you have one of those greasy auto shop manuals in your garage, that's 1 Corinthians. And you turn to chapter 3, how to build a church. But you're not going to find blueprints and architectural plans. What you will find instead is this. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.10 Paul lays the foundation and then talks about how we build on that foundation. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a marvelous chapter. Then in chapter 4, Paul has to pause and assert his apostolic authority. 
He explains to the church of Corinth why he has the right to say what he's about to get into, which is chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, where he deals with discipline in the church, lawsuits, sexual purity, marriage, all these things, questions of the church at Corinth, things they were confused about. Well, of course they would be. They've been worshiping Aphrodite for years. And now all of a sudden there's this worship of the one true God and worship of Jesus. What's that supposed to look like? And Paul begins to instruct in all these things. All the marriage chapter. The marriage chapter is the reason he wrote the letter. The people at Corinth wrote to Paul and said, we're confused about marriage. Because when Paul came and they began to give their lives to Jesus, you had husbands who were saved and wives who were not. Wives who came to faith in Jesus, but their husbands did not. You have people who have been divorced and and came to Jesus. Now they're trying to figure out, what do I do with with that previous mess? You have people who are in marriage, but they're they're kind of messing around and they're, they're confused. How do we walk out marriage? And so 1 Corinthians 7, Paul lays it out beautifully, specifically. And it's even instructive and helpful for us today. Chapters 8 and 9, he's going to deal with liberty in Christ. For a people who had thought they were free in their sinful lifestyle... They now had true freedom. But what does that mean? What does that look like to be free in Christ? That's talked about in chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 10, he deals with temptation. And specifically relates it to Israel as the example. Paul raises Israel as a people again and says, What happened to them? Man, that's instructive for us right now upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Chapter 10. Oh, chapter 11 is great. Order in the church. The church shall now come to order because this church was not an orderly church. I told you it was a party town. This was a party church. They literally were getting drunk during communion. I'm not kidding. Paul addresses that. You show up, you feast, you get drunk. The rich people have plenty to eat. The poor people have nothing to eat. You're stumbling around. Can you even imagine <laughs> on a Sunday morning at the bridge? What's up, gang? Woo-hoo! Cheers! Open up the first opinions. <laughs> they were dealing with this. Drunkenness at church. For goodness sakes. People stomping all over each other to get attention and talk and call out things. The women were out of control. <laughs> Order in the church. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Spiritual gifts. Why in 1 Corinthians, for this hot mess of a church, does Paul come along and begin to talk about spiritual gifts? I'll give you a hint. They were the most spiritually gifted church in the Middle East. Which is a great combination. Spiritual gifts and messed up people. And so he talks about that. He says, I do not want you to be misinformed, brethren, about the pneumaticos, the spirituals, or about the charisma, the gifts. More on that in just a second. But sandwiched in the middle of this discussion, and I know a lot of you are looking forward to this, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, don't forget that 13 is the meat of the sandwich. Chapter 13 is that great chapter of love. The most poetic chapter that Paul ever wrote related to love. And a little hint before we get there in several weeks. 1 Corinthians 13 is not just about love. 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of the character of God. Which is interesting to me because a lot of non-believers use it for their weddings. People who say, I don't want any Jesus in my wedding. I've had people say that and I say, well then I don't want me in your wedding because I can't do it. I don't want any Jesus in my wedding, so is there some verse or something you can use that doesn't talk about Jesus? And they typically will pick 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Oh, I like that, that's nice. You might as well say, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind. It's all about Him. It's a description of Him. And Paul lays out this love chapter in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts, because the gifts can tend to confuse, especially when you're a fleshly-minded people. He says, listen, there's, there's a more excellent way, and it is to love in the usage of all these things. Love is primary. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll get there. 1 Corinthians 15. 
Paul will then talk about the resurrection. In fact, he'll go from the resurrection of Christ to the rapture. The rapture of the church. Our calling out, our being called home, our changing in a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And then finally in chapter 16, he'll give some final instructions and scooch on out with some greetings and be done. That is 1 Corinthians. We'll wait to talk about 2 Corinthians. But this letter is packed full of instruction for a beautifully messed up church. And I was reading this and thinking, wow, Lord, this church that was powerful in the Spirit, polluted by the flesh, Corinthos, this is the perfect letter for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. Beautifully messed up. Wait a minute. You find that a little offensive? I'm sorry, Rick, but it's very quiet in here. We clearly are an orderly people. You think we're messy? Well, you don't? You don't think that you're messy? I'm messy? We're messy? Of course we are. In fact, what the world doesn't realize is the reason we're here this morning is because we messed up. We need us some Jesus. Because we know the mess we make otherwise. But listen, it's more than that. This is a marvelous fellowship. I just get a bang out of being with you guys. I really do. But you know what? It's far more than this. If we are to intentionally pursue the vision of Jesus Christ for this fellowship, here in the Pacific Northwest, it's going to get really messy. It is going to get uncomfortably messy. Fellow homeschool parents, there's going to be kids in here that we were really glad to pull our kids out from hanging around, and now they're coming to our church? Can't we get away from them? There will be problematic people. There will be messy, sinful situations. I love it. Jeff D'Angelo is uh, among our shepherds again. He is, he rejoined us. I want to let you all know that. So now he is Shepherd Jeff. He joined us Thursday night, and Jeff and I have been talking for a while, kind of leading up to this. Jeff was one of the first two. Jeff and Mike Freeman were the first two shepherds that we had here uh, over 12 years ago. Jeff and I were having conversation about this in the run-up to it, and he said, you know what, Rick? The one thing that God's been telling me more than anything else over the last several months of really drawing me back this direction, he's told me over and over, it's going to be messy. You use that word. It's going to be messy. Yeah, beautifully messy. Hey, I don't enjoy tension. I don't enjoy problems. I don't enjoy when sin springs up and gets all over people and we're all going, ah! I don't love that. But you know what? It's beautiful. Because here we get washed. Here in Jesus we get clean. He wants the messes brought here to be cleaned up. That's the whole point. Naomi yesterday went outside to get something out of the car. She was gone like an hour. Where's my daughter? I go outside and she's hosing off. What are you doing? She has her pajamas on. She's hosing off. Well, I came outside and I got messy. Okay, I understand that. Come inside and let mom and I help clean you up. She just, I guess, didn't want to get in trouble for being messy. So she's out there with a hose. (laughs) And I'm thinking as a parent, how do you expect to get in the door and down the stairs without us seeing you dripping wet? (laughs) It's messy business we're called to, folks. Gloriously, wondrously, beautifully messy. Now, back to chapter 1. A couple more quick things and we're done. I thank my God, verse 4, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. This is foundational. This messed up church, gang, has already received the grace of God unto salvation. Paul is not writing to Corinth a lost church. He is writing to Corinth a saved church. Messy, yes. Sinful, absolutely. But saved, These are His own, God's own people. He continues on. Well, Jesus said it this way. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What excites me the most about studying 1 Corinthians is that this is not a text for a doctrinal debate. Get that down. Because 1 Corinthians has been used as a text for debate in seminaries for years, in churches for years. Well, let's just go to 1 Corinthians and we can debate what that means or what this looks like or your opinion or take on that. No, that is not why this letter was written. This is not a letter about how to get saved. It is a letter about how to live saved. These people have been, are saved. So are you. So am I. But now then, how shall we live? And that's Paul's answer in this marvelous letter. And by the way, I do not believe it was ever intended to be a letter of theological debate. It is a letter about life. How to live life in Christ Jesus, even when it gets messy, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Verse 5. So then he says that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Okay, wait right there. You are not lacking in any gift. Corinth, again, was possibly the most spirit-filled, spiritually gifted, charismatic church in the entire Middle East. We know more about this church than any other. They had it going on in the Spirit. I mean, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, and prophecy, and gifts, and healings, and miracles, and discernment, and speaking in tongues, and the interpretation of the tongues with which they were speaking. Man, they were the poster child of the spiritually gifted, charismatic church. Maybe not like we think of charismatic today, or gifted today. I told you before, spiritual and charismatic. You'll see those two words a lot in this book, especially in chapters 12 and 14. Spiritual is pneumatikos. Pneumatikos, which is of the spirit, of spiritual things, or of the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. The other word he uses is the word we see translated so often, gifts, and it's charisma. Charisma. Which literally means graciously bestowed. So these things of the Spirit, these spiritual things are graciously bestowed. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit Himself is graciously bestowed on God's people for God's purposes. But this wonderfully spiritually gifted church was wildly out of order. Paul writes to them and where gross immorality was tolerated because they thought that's what you were supposed to do. In chapter 5, he'll say, I can't even believe I'm writing this, but one of you has his father's wife. Stop! How can you do that? Gross immorality was going on, and people were just like, well, you know, that's just his thing. (laughs) It's it's cool. Lawsuits were flying among believers. Can you even imagine that? Well, I'd sit by you, but I have to sit over there because we have a restraining order between us, so that can't happen. (laughs) Marriage, completely out of whack. Communion was a gluttonous kegger and chaos was commonplace. This was the church at Corinth. And Paul describes this craziness going on. 1 Corinthians 14.31, he says, You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. What was happening is they gathered the assembly on a Sunday and they'd all start prophesying at once. So a non-believer would walk in and it would just be chaos. Someone over here is speaking in tongues. This guy's interpreting, but no one can hear him because it's so loud. Just nuts. And Paul says, listen. 1 Corinthians 14.32 The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. What does that mean? You don't have to be out of control. In fact, you're not supposed to be out of control. With few exceptions, and I've actually only been able to find one in all of Scripture, people don't fall into a trance and then lose all control of themselves and have to do whatever the trance tells them to do. That is not charismatic. That's just weird, man. The one trance I read of in Scripture is when Peter is in prayer and falls into a trance and has a vision on the house of Simon where God is lowering that sheet. Remember that? Acts chapter 10? 
And that wasn't described as some kind of out of control thing. He just, he fell into a, a vision. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, for God is not a God of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14.33, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. And by the way, sisters, you're going to love the next couple of verses that follow that. I'm not going to go there this morning. We will go there, though. We will talk about it because, hey, it's in the book. And we'll talk about what it means for a woman to remain silent. In the church. Lana? I'm telling you. The point is, the church at Corinth, not of Corinth, was uncontrolled charismania. That was going on. It was as if you took that spiritually gifted poster child and drew a mustache and a little beard and funny glasses and weird wild eyes. They were supposed to be so gifted and yet they were so messed up. How did they get that way? Now here's where it gets practical to us because I want you to understand. Two things. Number one, they were still babies. They were spiritually out of control because they were massively gifted, but they were babies. It's like handing a child a power saw. Out of control. They were babies. They didn't know any better. What do they have? Four, maybe five years under their belts when Paul wrote this letter back to them? To help them understand? While Paul was with them, he could maintain the control, but he left and they just went berserk. They were still babes. Four or five years. We've had 2,000. And we still have charismania going on in the world today. We still have messy churches. We still have churches out of control. You think we'd learn? Well, here's the thing. They were babies in Christ, but they were doing something else that is the problem today when we see the same thing happening, and that is they were blending flesh with spirit. They were blending flesh with spirit. Whenever you try to mix the spiritual and the carnal, things will get messed up. You try and bring in the natural man, the natural woman to spiritual things, and it's going to cause it to go over. Listen to this. I'll just read it to you. Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. And he's talking about partnerships or connections, even like a business partnership. He's saying, think about who you're connecting yourself to. He's not saying ignore the non-believer. He's just saying be wise. Don't be bound to the non-believer. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Live at Corinth, just don't live like Corinth. Don't trail in all that Aphrodite stuff that you were so used to before. you got to leave it behind. Christians, when we give our lives to Jesus, we have made a commitment to leave the old man, the old woman, behind. And we ought not to continue to function and think and act and behave like we used to. It should radically change us. Some of those changes are immediate and automatic. Some of those changes just take time. But we should be sanctified. The problem at Corinth was a cultural problem. They were blending the flesh with the Spirit and so out of control. Over a hundred years ago, early 1900s, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, G. Campbell Morgan wrote something that he could have written last week. Let me read this to you. The measure of failure on the part of the church is the measure in which she has allowed herself to be influenced by the spirit of the age. He is absolutely right. He says we are sometimes told today that what the church supremely needs 
is that she should catch the spirit of the age. Cultural relevance. Morgan writes a thousand times, no. What the church supremely needs is to correct the spirit of the age, not be influenced by it. Not to look like it. And I would add, our job is not only to correct the spirit of the age, but to do so by the Holy Spirit of the living God. We are not to conform to the world, but to be, what did Paul say in Romans 12, transformed by the renewing of our minds. A transformed people for the next age, not influenced by this age. And that's the problem with what Chuck Smith, among others, called charismania. You know, the craziness, the out-of-control stuff, the barking and the, and the laughter that's out of control and the Holy Spirit glue. Have you heard of this one? Holy Spirit glue. Seriously. I was glued to the wall for half an hour. I couldn't move. Really? We're going to talk about some strange fire as we understand spiritual things. And my perspective on the Holy Spirit and on the power of the Spirit, you need to understand, is completely different from how I was raised. I was raised denying that power. I was raised holding to a form of godliness, but denying the power. I didn't believe it. I didn't accept it. I thought it was all weirdness. A lot of it is. A lot of the way men and women today in the church express what they think is the Holy Spirit is just weird. It's not biblical. And so we've got a huge arm of the church that says we just don't want any of that at all. We want to go and we want to sit comfortably in our little space. We want to be in control and clean and orderly and boring as a bag of dirt. You know what? I don't want that either. I want to live by the power of the Spirit of God in all truth. Spirit and truth. And that's what He's called us and invited us to. And it's easy to know, if the fruit of the Spirit doesn't accompany the power and the gifts of the Spirit, we're just going to be a spiritual mess. And that was Corinth. See, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That should be present where the Spirit is at work. The fruit of the Spirit. If not, it gets messy. On the other hand, please understand, if we would be alive in Christ, we must allow His Spirit to move. We must not quench the Spirit. Paul says so, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Remember, His Spirit is the Holy Spirit and holiness is the deal. The Holy Spirit. So they were blending the flesh with the spiritual. We can learn from that. Don't blend in the flesh. You want to become more spiritual. You want to be more spirit-filled. You want to be more charismatic in a truly godly and marvelous way? You do it with a spirit of holiness. We are sanctified saints. The made holy, holy ones. So pursue holiness and let Jesus pour out the power of the Spirit on you. Pursue righteousness and let Him bring His power. Well, how do I do that exactly? How how do I pursue holiness? I've already told you ten times. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Ten times in ten verses, Paul calls on the name of Jesus Christ. You want to be powerful in the Spirit? You pursue Him. You pursue holiness and righteousness and the goodness of God. And let Him pour out the power. Verse 7, he says, So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, you want to pursue holiness? You pursue Jesus. The reason why I call the church at Corinth a beautiful mess, the mess is obvious. The beautiful part These people loved Jesus. They were messed up. They were confused. 
They were chaotic, but boy, you cannot question that they loved Jesus Christ because Paul says before he gets to any of the instruction, you are eagerly awaiting Him. I know this. You gifted, marvelous, wacky people. You are awaiting eagerly the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't wait to see Him. And I'll tell you what, any church that can't wait to see Jesus, as messed up as that church may be, will see Him when He comes. And we will be like Him when we see Him as He is. That's the key. Okay, get this and we're done this morning. But this is absolutely absolutely the key. If it's about churchiosity, I am going to find a way to blend in carnality anywhere I can. If it's about playing church, I will find a way to invite the flesh into our meetings. But if it's about loving Jesus, all I want to do is please Him. The flesh has no place there. If my eyes are on Jesus, my spirit is alive. I want to be with Him and see Him and act like Him and think like Him. I want to do what He does. So let me encourage you. As we go through this letter, I almost guarantee every one of us will at some point come across something we have completely gotten wrong. You're going to be reading along and realize, oh, I messed up. Because that's me. That's me right there. Listen, when that happens, and like I said, it will, don't wallow in it. Just change direction. Correct the course. This is a life-living manual for people who are saved to correct course. To dial into their sanctification, perhaps in areas that they didn't even realize they needed to be sanctified. For Jesus' sake, correct the course. Paul did not write this letter to shame the saints, but to correct their courses. And so he declares right here at the very beginning, verse 8, that he will confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Messed up church, you're confirmed. You are confirmed that you're going when he calls you home. The day of Christ is the rapture of the church. It's when Jesus calls his people out, calls his people home. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we, Paul, talking to those who are alive, will be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4 We will join with them. We will meet them in the air and so we shall forever be with the Lord. He has confirmed this. If you have called on the name of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Let me just confirm your reservation right now. You're going when He calls. But I messed up! So was Corinth. But I struggled with the sins. So did Corinth. Let Him sanctify you. Let Him change those areas in your lives, my life, that need changing. He will do it. Let's just fix our eyes on Jesus and eagerly await His coming. Amen? Amen. The beautiful mess. Wow, the beautiful mess is going to be blameless. And that's the deal. You're being called right now. I don't know if you knew that. But the Holy Spirit, through the faithful God, in the name of Jesus Christ, is calling you out right now, right here this morning. How is Corinthus working out for you? How's this culture doing? How is trying to be in and of and like the culture? How does that bless you? You know it doesn't. You know it. I know it. Like Sisyphus rolling that stone up the hill. And down it comes. And he has to go down and roll it back up. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's meaningless. Momentary gratification gives way to never being satisfied. And Jesus comes along and says, if you will call on My name right now in this moment, you will be saved. And then the rest of your life, I'll push that stone up the hill. And when we get to the top, we will go home. 